0: Amen. You guys can grab a seat. We good? How we doing? How we doing? Uh, Welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. Uh, It's a joy uh, to be with you this morning. Um, As uh, Daryl said in our call to worship, um, horrific week, uh, and I'm not making any political commentary at all. Uh, I'm making a theological one that just, it's sad and heavy um, and not the way it should be. And so we long for Jesus to return quickly. And what we just sang um, essentially, the the truth of that song we just sang, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, is just that um, come disaster, come storm, um, come death, come danger, uh, come horror, uh, God will make all things right one day. Uh, And we long for that day. We hope for that day. Um, We hope for it in our own personal pains, but also when we see it and hear it and um, have to watch it. um, Come quickly, Jesus. So. Um we are not preaching about that today uh but we are uh in in the Last couple weeks of our spring series, we're finishing up an Encounters with Jesus series. We've been looking at all these personal interactions that Jesus has with particular people, Um, looking at uh, the woman at the well and the paralytic lowered through the roof and um, the religious elite and the children and Peter by a fireside last week. And so we're looking at all these interactions with Jesus. And here's what I hope you've seen over the course of this semester. Uh, We'll finish it up next week. Our, Our series with Encounters with Jesus is this this very particular Jesus, this master of the present moment Jesus, this wonderful counselor Jesus, who almost never says the same thing to two different people. It's not because uh, different things were more or less true, it's because Jesus knew exactly what was needed to be heard in that moment by that person and by that crowd. Uh, Jesus is so present, he's so attuned, he's so masterful that he's able to actually lean in and say, what would cut to the heart of this person and what would cut to the heart of this crowd uh, right now? Jesus is able to do that. and So we see it no differently uh, this morning as we look at Jesus' encounter with a wee little man, Zacchaeus. That's uh, what you know about him. So what we all know about him if you grew up in the church. Uh, and it's, it's actually, there's a reason why we know that about him. So we're going to study the only account of Zacchaeus is in Luke chapter 19. Uh, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, if not, it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, these 10 verses. It says, he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, very brief recap of what just took place. Uh, this is nearing the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, he is passing through Jericho, we're told. He is, he is not intending on stopping in Jericho. We're told he intends to pass through Jericho. Because what lies on the other side of Jericho, a few miles down the road, is Jerusalem. Jesus, a few chapters before this, has turned his face, set his face like flint, we're told, towards Jerusalem. I've got a mission, and my mission culminates in Jerusalem. I'm going there to be betrayed, to be arrested, to stand trial, to be crucified, to die, to be buried, and to raise again. That's coming upon us. The very next action that Jesus will take is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the last story that Luke tells us of Jesus's earthly ministry. Kind of a climax of all that Luke has been building towards happens here in the story of Zacchaeus. Word about Jesus has spread. Jesus is, a, is a, um, an influencer. Uh, he's got a trillion followers on Instagram and TikTok. And he probably would have been more on Instagram than TikTok. He wasn't weird. You know, he, I'm kidding. I don't know anything about TikTok. But, he, but he's got a crowd. When he travels, people, people culminate, people, people gather. He's traveling through Jericho, this somewhat major city in Israel, and a crowd gathers And we're told about this crowd gathering, this man passing through town, Jesus, who is notorious. And Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, wants to see who he was. We don't know what Zacchaeus knew about Jesus up until this point. We just know he was curious about him, wanted to find out more about him. So Zacchaeus is hindered in seeing this Jesus and hearing potentially some of his teaching or maybe witnessing a miracle. No one knew when Jesus might stop and teach or stop and and perform something. And so Zacchaeus wants to get close But in order to do so, he's hindered. He has to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. What he didn't know was that Jesus was intending on seeing him. So Zacchaeus climbs this sycamore tree, sees him, calls him by name, calls out to him, calls him down, tells him he's coming to stay at his house that night. And Zacchaeus then, the the scene kind of shifts quickly to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, after Jesus has been with him, Decides to give away an enormous amount of his wealth, which we'll talk about, in restitution for all that he had done. And then after those nine verses of a quick story with Zacchaeus, nine verses of a quick story, verse 10 of this uh, passage is, is Jesus giving kind of a culminating mission statement about all that his kingdom came to be about. Son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It's kind of Jesus' mission of the world is wrapped up in this story with Zacchaeus. So that's it. That's the story. That's these 10 verses. But if we slow down for a minute, we will notice a few dynamics at play here, things that maybe um, we don't get if we just kind of breeze through it and let the familiarity of it teach us. We have to kind of stop and and try to get re-familiar with it. Um, We're told in, in the second verse that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, Now that word doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture. It barely appears anywhere else in ancient first century literature anywhere else. So what does it mean that he was a chief tax collector? Well, here's what we know about tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors were despised. Tax collectors were sleazy. Tax collectors were looking out for their own ends. And this man, Zacchaeus, was the chief of those. He was the chief despised person. He was above all the other hated people. He was disdained more than anybody. He was richer than any of the other tax collectors in this region. If I say to you, tax collector, though, I know in the modern day, you think IRS. Um, I was actually with a man uh, this week who's planting a church in Germany, the least churched city in Germany. He's a German man. We got connected through a church planting network, and uh, I was just kind of asking a story, and how did you get to be planting this church in the least church city in Germany? And he said, actually, I used to work for the German IRS. And it's the same thing in America as in Germany. No one likes the IRS there either. And he said it actually was a sociological step up at parties to say, I'm now a pastor. I used to work for the IRS, <laughs> but like in the least church city in Germany, I would rather tell people I'm a pastor <laughs> than tell them that I work for the IRS. So really in all ages, um, in all you know, generations, no one really likes the IRS. No one really likes tax collectors. But it's way more than that in this day uh, that, of Zacchaeus. Tax collecting meant something else. He didn't just report like the IRS. He didn't just um, audit things. He was way more sinister than that. Israel was underneath Roman rule, the Roman government, the Roman oppression. And this was not taxation for the purpose of making sure the roads didn't have potholes. This was taxation as oppression. This was a shakedown. Rome would say to any region, we don't have to let you live. It's a mercy that we even let you stay alive and stay in your home country. And so any excess cash from the working class, we're gonna take from them. And if you have extra capital, you have extra goods, you have extra assets, we are going to tax that and take it from you. The problem was not only was Rome oppressing people with the taxes and taking all of their excess wealth, the only person in a region who knew how much Rome was taxing in any given season was the tax collector, And so if Rome says, we need 100 denarii this year, the tax collector could go to his region and say, Rome needs 200 denarii. And then he could pay Rome their 100 denarii and then keep the extra 100 for himself. And so no one knew, how much is he lining his own pockets? We know that you know, tax collector, we know that you're using this system for your own good. What made it worse was, was that tax collectors in a region were native to that region. And so Zacchaeus is a kinsman. Zacchaeus is an Israelite. Zacchaeus was a Jew. And he sinisterly worked his way up to line his own pockets to make more bang for his buck, to have more in his retirement, to have another vacation house, to have a bigger house, to do what he wanted to do. He could always lie and oppress the people. And the more that the Roman oppression was hated by the people, the more the tax collectors were even more hated because they were seen as collaborators with the oppressor. You are enslaving us with our oppressors. You're making it worse, and you're getting rich off of it. Zacchaeus was a hated man, despised by locals. You are collaborating with the enemy. You're a slave driver, and you're helping keep our oppressors in power. Now you may know that from historical accounts of tax collection. That is true. Other lots of historical documents would show you that tax collectors were hated in the Roman Empire, but we see an extra measure of it in this story, and it's actually why we know what we all know about Zacchaeus—that he was a wee little man. We all know that because what Luke is trying to do—he's not trying to tell us how tall he was. He doesn't. We don't like Luke isn't giving like you know baseball card stats on Zacchaeus. Like he's not. He's not letting us know how. Tall he was, just to let us know how tall he was. Here's what he wants to do. He's trying to let us know how extra hated this man was. In verse 3, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was short, and because he was short, he had to climb a tree because the crowd would not let him see. Which means, if you think about this scene just for a moment, you've been to parades, you've been to concerts, you've been to events. You've been to places where there are mobs and mobs of people gathering up to see something, trying to get as close as they can to see something. And most human beings, unless you have like no soul, most human beings, if there's someone shorter behind you, they say, hey, I can't see. No one has a problem going, sure, just stand in front of me until the person can see. No one has a problem letting someone who is smaller in stature than them get in front of them so they can see. It's why Ray Hale sits in the back every week because he is the tallest guy in the room. Doesn't want to block your view. Thanks, Ray. But it's because we don't mind letting those that are smaller than us get in front of us when there are crowds of people. But we're told by Luke he was small and no one would let him through. Normally, human beings would let people through. Not this man. He was that hated. That's why Luke wants you to know he was small. And he was so hated that he was forced to do the thing that no one wanted to do, which was climb a tree. He's so despised he has to climb a tree, which any Middle Eastern person, ancient or modern, would read that and know just how much disgrace Zacchaeus is taking on himself to go see Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't want to climb a tree. Middle Eastern men, especially Middle Eastern men in power, don't climb trees. This is not Zacchaeus being a kid again, and isn't it so fun he gets to find his inner child and climb a tree? No, that's not what's happening read in a book this week, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a great book. Uh, Kenneth Bailey. It's, it's a phenomenal book. It tells all these parables and stories of Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. Kenneth Bailey lived in the Middle East for 40 years. And here's, here's what he says No Middle Eastern man would, would hear, or no Middle Eastern person would see that a man of power and prominence climbed a tree and think that that was a good thing. The disgrace that one would take on themselves to climb a tree. He tells a story of 40 or 50 years ago. Um, Uh, some kind of commissioner, some kind of um, ambassador from a Middle Eastern country, Syria or Jordan, I forget, was hosting a party in his own house. And and to get ready for this, you know, dignified party goes in his own backyard that's fenced in where no one can see it and climbs a tree to hang some lights. And that man's boss gets to his house for the party at this guy's house and he says to him, I heard news that you climbed a tree getting ready for the party and I have grounds to fire you. The amount of disgrace that you brought on yourself our department, this country. If I hear of anything like that ever again, you will not have a job here. He was climbing a tree in his own backyard, and the amount of disgrace that that would do, the amount of degradation, the amount of dignity lost for a man to climb a tree did not happen. People would not do this, but Zacchaeus doesn't feel like he has a choice. I will climb a tree and disgrace myself in doing so. I'm so hated and so despised, I wanna see Jesus. And then we get to Jesus after all this disgrace, after all this disdain, after all this hatred, after all this, this, this tension building in these first few verses, we get to Jesus. Verse five, Ross, let me throw this up there. So when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Luke here uses an interesting word from Jesus's lips that he doesn't use very often. Here we're told that Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus through the, through the sycamore leaves and says to him, Zacchaeus, I must stay in your house tonight. As in, I must do this. As in, I'm on a mission. I'm compelled by something that is divine and otherworldly. Zacchaeus, this is not a discussion. Zacchaeus, this is not a democracy. I am the God-man, and from my divine self-will, I'm telling you what I must do, what I came to do, is I'm going to stay at your house. And I don't need your permission. I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. And as modern Americans, we don't really understand the depth. It's kind of like, ooh, presumptuous. Jesus, you just invited yourself to the party. But that's not what's going on here. What was going on here is far more cultural, has far more cultural importance and weight than that. When Jesus says he's coming to stay at his house, the whole crowd knows what that means. Verse seven, the crowd's reaction tells us how the crowd felt about it. We'll look at that in a minute. But by this declaration of Jesus to come and say, Zacchaeus, I am coming to stay at your house, It was an enormous action. To offer hospitality or to accept hospitality was essentially an offer to accept the invitation to real and lasting friendship, to real and lasting relationship. The welcoming in of a guest of honor was so important that it actually brought honor to an entire community. So in the beginning of the section, when it says that Jesus intended the guest of honor, the man who's famous, the man who has a crowd, the man who is you know, storming the, the nation with his popularity, that man is passing through Jericho. All of Jericho wants this man in this honor-based culture, in this hospitable-based culture to say, whose house is Jesus gonna stay at tonight? Because the honor that would happen for that house and that, what that would bring to that whole family for this guest of honor who's got this huge crowd to come and stay at my house means we are in relationship now. The guest of honor at the, at the person's house in that town, that person, that host was given great honor. So when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, we're told in verse one that Jesus didn't intend on staying in the town. I'm just passing through Jericho. I'm not staying here tonight. But then, when he says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, why do you think everybody freaked out? Jesus, this is a tax collector. Do you know who this person is? He's a collaborator with the oppressors, he's a slave driver, he's lining his own pockets. This man is a collaborator with Rome. We hate that man. And now this guest of honor in our own town isn't staying with anyone else. He's staying with the man that this town hates more than anybody. And he's giving that man great honor in doing so. That is not okay with the crowd. Jesus, don't do this to us. We all hate that man. We just tried to stop him from seeing you. And now not only do you see him and know him by name, not only are you moving towards him, you're going to give him the honor of hosting you. Jesus offers it says he must do it, gives honor to Zacchaeus. And as all the tension is building to this moment, here's what it all means. Jesus is essentially looking at a man who is morally corrupt. And he doesn't say to this man, which the whole crowd would have been thrilled if Jesus had said, hey, Zacchaeus, I see you up in that tree. I know you wanted to see me. I tell you what, clean up your life and I'll come to your house. In fact, we're not far from Jerusalem, Zacchaeus. How about you go to Jerusalem, offer some sacrifices, make some restitution, pay what you need to pay back to those that you swindled. And on my way back through Jericho, Zacchaeus, if you've cleaned up your life, then I'll stay at your house. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, clean up your life and I'll love you. He doesn't say, clean up your life and we can be in relationship. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming into your life. And I'm loving you before you even have the chance to love me. I'm coming to you first. Because that's how salvation works. That's how divine mercy always moves. Jesus is always the initiator. Jesus here is displaying and pouring out his glorious mercy on someone who could not have been a worse person. He's pouring out divine mercy on someone who could not have deserved it less. And salvation in the person of Jesus comes running to him. Jesus announces he's coming to Zacchaeus' house and giving him honor and wants to be in relationship with him before Zacchaeus could deserve it. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus declares how much he wants to come to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus moved first because Jesus always moves first. If you belong to Jesus, that's how Jesus came to you. He came to you first. 1 John says that we love God because he first loved us. It's one of the most distinguishing pieces of Christianity. Mercy comes before Performance. Only in Christianity is a verdict given before there is anything accomplished that does not exist in any other world religion or philosophy where you can get salvation before you do anything. Only in Christianity does salvation precede achievements. That's what mercy is. That's what Jesus is doing when he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house and you haven't done anything yet. You haven't made your promise to make this right yet. You haven't even repented yet. And I'm coming to give you honor because I want to be with you. Now we may hear that, even if you're outside the church, even if you're exploring Christianity or who Jesus is, you may even smile at that and think that that's wonderful. Salvation before performance, that's so lovely. That's flowery and butterflies. Like that's, that sounds amazing. That's not what happens in the passage. That's not the punch of the passage. That's not what this passage is about. Look at the mercy of Jesus. Don't we all want that mercy? Look at salvation before performance. Look at a verdict before accomplishments. Isn't that so great? Not in the passage, it's not. When Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and he busts into his world, he says, I must come to your house. I must bring you honor. I must be in relationship with you. I'm coming to you before you've come to me and he comes to his house, the crowd is livid. People in real time, like the original audience of Luke chapter 19, they don't think it's wonderful. They're outraged. Look at verse seven with me. It says, and when they saw it, this is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They are not happy about this. They do not celebrate. They do not get excited for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we're so happy for you. We're so glad that you get mercy before there's judgment. We're so happy you get a verdict before you've accomplished anything. We're so glad God has chosen to be in a relationship with you before you even repented to him. Man, that makes me so warm and fuzzy inside. They are livid at Jesus for this. Do you think, do you think we're capable of that? Do you think we're capable of hearing someone being shown mercy, someone being shown salvation before achievement and not being excited about it? Do you think that do you think that's possible for us? Maybe if we could frame it for us like it was framed for them, we would see ourselves rightly. Jesus says something at the very end of this passage, verse 10, that is a thesis statement for his whole mission. This is the culmination of his earthly ministry, and this is what he says in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we hear that and we go, oh, lost sheeps, lost coins, Jesus seeks lost things, isn't that so great? Again, not what's happening in this passage. You want to know what he just said? The lost, meaning those that don't get it those that can't see it, those that are on the outside of your circles, those that don't know their way, those that can't find their way, those that can't read a map, those that don't own a map, those that are clueless, those that are unenlightened and can't reason and can't see and can't understand. That's who Jesus is talking about when he says the lost. So who do you see in your world as lost? Who in your world doesn't get it? Is it your in-laws? Is it your political opponents? God, Republicans just don't get it. They just don't get it. Liberals just don't get it. They're so lost, they can't see it. I've got my rights. They don't get it. Is it your spouse? Is it your coworkers? Is it your boss? Who in your world, from your perspective, doesn't get it like you get it? Is it the rich? Is it the poor? Who doesn't know their way around? Who would you define as confused and obtuse? Who, according to you, is lost? Everybody has them. Don't act like you don't have them. I've, I could probably tell you whose yours are if you think you don't have them. Because here's what, even, even the most inclusive people are, have this list. The most inclusive people, the most welcoming people get really, really angry at the people who are not like them, who are pretty exclusive. Everybody's welcome, Everybody, everybody's included in my, in my tribe, everybody's welcome over here. Unless you don't think like that, then you're out. The most inclusive, even please just be honest enough to admit, you've got people that you define as lost. You've got people that you define as obtuse. You've got people that you don't think get it. And now get really honest. How do you feel about those people? How do you treat them in your heart? How much bitterness do you have toward them? How much disdain, even if somewhat righteous disdain, how much disdain do you have for them? Jesus just told you he came to seek and to save those people. Jesus just told you in his heart he must come to their house. He must be in relationship with them. He must honor them. He wants to be with them. Jesus just told you he would rather stay with them than stay with you. He'd rather be at their house than at your house. So how do you feel about mercy? How do you feel about mercy before performance when you hear Jesus say that his mercy may extend to the people that you hate? Love mercy until it's for my enemies. Love mercy until it's for the people that don't think like me. Love mercy until it's for the people that have wounded me, until it's for the people that are wounding society, until it's for the people that are dumb and unenlightened. Man, I love mercy before salvation, or I love mercy before accomplishments. I love salvation before judgment. I love, I love, I love knowing that I can be saved before I accomplish anything. I love all that, but not for them. Mercy for me, merit for everybody else. This is This is offensive. That's how the crowd crowd is reacting in an honest way. (laughs) To dare to imagine that Jesus doesn't disdain the same people I do is quite unnerving. I was talking with Joseph, our worship leader this week, and and this, this 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 is how the story plays out. We see it here. If Jesus doesn't align with my rage, he will ultimately become the next target of it. He will be who I am now raging at if he doesn't rage at all the same people that I rage at. Or in the words of Anne Lamont, you can be sure you've made God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. But Jesus just told you he came to seek and to save those people. He came to find those that you would keep out. He came to save those that you look down on. He came to show mercy towards those that you can't stand. That's the punch of the passage. Not so felt-boardy and fun anymore, is it? Like, not, not what I wanted Jesus to do here. Not like VBS and Zacchaeus was a wee little man and everybody went home happy. No, they didn't. In Luke's final story before the triumphal entry, Jesus will tell one other parable, but then the triumphal entry will hit. Before the f- triumphal entry, Jesus is making one final declaration about his kingdom. And here's what he's saying to everybody there and to everybody reading it. Hey, 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 hey. My kingdom may be for the people that you think are lost. And guess how I, the king of that kingdom, view those people? I came to seek and save them. now it doesn't mean he intends to keep them lost he intends to save them he's going to move towards them first to be with them to dwell with them to be in relationship with them to shower them with mercy but ultimately he came to transform them which is what we see the radical transformation of Zacchaeus which happens next guys, I got to be honest real quick. I got a digital clock this week in the back so I can check my time now and I'm doing good on time. Okay. I've been asking Matt Ackerman for that for seven years. Yes. Thank you. I just, yes, yes. We have, we have time for an applause. Thank you. Cause I don't read analog clocks very well. Um, anyway, um, But I, I have on my note. Check time. I can check time so quick now. Um, here's what we see in the radical transformation of Zacchaeus. Once Jesus comes to his house, look at what look at how Zacchaeus is transformed. Look at what he says in response in verse eight. We throw this up there, Ralston. He says, "Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor." And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, those that are familiar with Old Testament laws of restitution would know how over the top this is. This is outrageously generous, but it's even more than that. Not only does he promise to go above and beyond the requirement of restitution, which when he says I'll give away half of my goods, when he, and then I'll give I'll, whatever I've stolen, I'll, I'll, I'll restore fourfold, some scholars think, just based on simple math, that what he just promised to do, he couldn't afford. Some scholars think he went into debt to make this payment right. Even if you just think about it, he says, first I'm gonna sell, sell half of everything I have, give, give half of everything away. And now I've got half of my assets left and I'm gonna restore all that I've defrauded people 4X with half of his estate. He may not be able to do it, He may have become poor in order to make this right. His generosity cost him something and he was willing to do it because of the transformation that had happened to him. But here's what I want you to see. This transformation that happens to him, who is he saying he wants to make things right for? Who is he saying that he wants to show mercy towards? Who is he saying that he wants to repay for all that he owes them? The people that hate him. Those that are on the outside. Those that he probably hated too. Those that two verses before did not like him, he wants to make it right by them. He wants to show mercy to those in his purview he had every right to hate. I hate them because they hate me, but now he doesn't view them that way. Now he wants to make it right by them. So how could we experience that kind of radical transformation? How, like Zacchaeus, could we be transformed to not only want to make things right, but to want to love my enemies instead of hate them? How could we be so transformed like Zacchaeus that we actually want those that we can't stand to be shown mercy? Because that's what happens to him. What happened to Zacchaeus that had this significant transformative effect on him we see in verse seven. The moment after Jesus calls him down from the tree, we see something powerful taking place. And we looked at it already, but I want to dwell with this one aspect of it. Ross, can we throw verse seven up there? This is the crowd. After Jesus has told Zacchaeus he's coming to his house, he says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Okay, so something shifted right here, and it's subtle, but it's really important, and it's what is transforming for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the most hated man in town. He was despised, he was a deceiver, he was a betrayer, he was a slave master. He was covered in the disdain of his people. But after Jesus sees him and comes to him and invades his world... Who do the people hate? Who are the people, who has the disdain of the people now? Jesus. Who are they grumbling at? Did you see the pronoun that's used? He has gone in to be the friend of this sinner. Zacchaeus, we maybe despise you, but now I hate this man, Jesus. At the climactic climax of this story, Jesus shifts the crowd's hostility against Zacchaeus onto himself. In other words, Jesus, by inserting himself into this story in this way and at this moment, he is physically and literally saying to Zacchaeus this, the wrath that you just had against you, the disdain that you deserve from these people, I will now bear for you. The scathing looks, the cursing lips, the murderous hearts. I will insert myself into that place so they now hate me. The wrath they had for you will now come against me. I will withstand the disdain and the shame that was being hurled at you. He has gone into the house with this sinner. We now hate Jesus. Zacchaeus was the recipient of a costly demonstration of unexpected love. And what did it do for him? He's watching Jesus literally become the target of their rage. Transforms him. And it made him want mercy for his enemies. And what Zacchaeus tasted in part, the reader will see in just a few pages just a foretaste of the ultimate work that Jesus came to do. That just like Zacchaeus climbed a tree and lost all of his dignity, in just a few pages, Jesus would do the very same thing. Jesus would climb the ultimate tree and lose all of his infinite dignity. And what would happen when he did? He would be saying to you, the wrath that you had against you, the disdain that you deserved, I will bear for you. You won't wear your disgrace any longer because I will swallow it up from our call to worship in Isaiah chapter 53 that by his wounds, we're healed. By his wounds, we're transformed. When Jesus Christ publicly bears your wrath, the more you see of it, the more you gaze upon it, the more you will want mercy for those that you hate too. Let's pray. Jesus... Um, We deserve uh, so much disdain and so much wrath, but you hung on a tree so that it would be yours and not ours. Would you now melt us by your mercy, the mercy that announces to us favor before there's performance, the salvation that comes to us before we ever come to it? Would you, like Zacchaeus got to behold you doing that for him, would you give us the gift of faith this morning to see you doing the same thing for us, publicly bearing the wrath that was meant for us. Melt us by your mercy, Jesus, until we want mercy for our enemies, we pray in your name, amen.